journalists take and take and take, and we mine other people's experiences for our stories. But what is it we give back? And I think for me, having now been on the other side of that equation, you know, having sat here and being interviewed about my trauma, I know what that feels like. And so I am more, I think it's better to share than to pretend that I am a completely impartial person who doesn't know what captivity is. Melissa Fung's family emigrated from Hong Kong to Canada when she was four. But instead of choosing a safe career, she says her parents got a lawyer out of her sister, Melissa opted for journalism. And between 2001 and 2013, she worked for the Canadian broadcaster CBC as an international correspondent, becoming a household name. But it was in 2008, while reporting in Afghanistan, that she was kidnapped by the Taliban and held underground for four weeks. But nonetheless, she has continued as a reporter, covering stories such as the kidnapping of the Chibuk schoolgirls in Nigeria, and she's now a vocal campaigner for Afghan refugees and their struggle for safe harbour. Melissa Fung, a very warm welcome to The Big Interview. Thank you so much for having me, Emma. It's good to have you around the microphone, finally. We've been trying for quite a long time for this to happen. Let's go to the beginning. Do you have any memories of what it was like your early years in Hong Kong, or is it all Canada? It's mostly Canada now, because we emigrated to Canada when I was four years old. So I really considered myself Canadian. But I did go to kindergarten in Hong Kong, because you start kindergarten when you're four years old. So... The memories of that are very, very vague. My earliest memories are of Canada. It's interesting that about 10 years ago, I went back to Hong Kong to get my Hong Kong citizenship ID card because the Hong Kong government was encouraging people to come back and do this. And I thought, this is great, you know, because I had covered the Olympics in Beijing and I thought, if I have this card, I'll be able to go back and forth in and out of China very easily. But now with relations between Canada and China really not in a good place, it's probably not a great idea for me to go to Hong Kong as a journalist anymore. So that, you know, I'm still kind of grieving the loss of being able to go back. But you still have the card? I still have the card. I'm, you know, thinking I'll probably never use it again. So you're leaving Hong Kong when you're four. What is it that drives your parents to Canada? I think they looked at the handover in 97, you know, and they thought, do we really want to stay here if China comes back? You know, they were children during the Cultural Revolution, right? My dad tells stories of what it was like to have to witness executions. My aunt, who was a concert pianist, was re-educated in a rice paddy for a few years. And so those were their memories of communist China. And they looked at 97 in Hong Kong and thought, you know, I'm not sure we want to stay here for that. And so they they already had family in Canada and coincidentally some family in Australia. So it was, you know, where do we go? And they chose Canada. And when you get there, your father starts his own business. He says he's working six days a week. He's dedicating himself to his new life. And your mum, quite glamorously, is an airline ticket agent. <laughs> What's that like? She is. She worked for Qantas, the Australian airline. And, you know, she'd worked for Qantas in Hong Kong. You know, they were both in the travel business. That's how they met. And so when we moved to Vancouver, very conveniently, there was a Qantas ticket office there. So she just slid right in. 
And growing up in Canada as a fresh face, what's it like? You know, we grew up in Vancouver, and when you go to Vancouver now, you know, it's mostly Asian. But when I was growing up in the 70s, I'm dating myself now, I was one of two Asian kids in my kindergarten class. It's hard to imagine that now, you know. And so we grew up, I grew up thinking that being called a slitty-eyed yellow person was a normal thing, right? And that, years later, I finally find out that that was not nice. But it was interesting to fit in because I didn't speak a lick of English in kindergarten at all. Cantonese is my first language. And I remember my parents say, you know, tell me the story of my teacher, uh, parent teacher saying to them, oh, you should speak English to her at home because that's, you know, how she's going to learn the language. And my parents ignored that advice because they knew I'd picked up English. They were afraid I would lose my Chinese, which is, in fact, you know, what ended up happening. You know, my Cantonese is, I get by, my Mandarin is terrible. So they were right. They were right. And growing up in Canada, your sister, as you have written about, becomes a lawyer. It's a good, safe profession. Meanwhile, a little Melissa has got other thoughts about what she wants to do with the rest of her life. What is it, when do you first notice that journalism and that the outside world and that curiosity and storytelling fire starts to light up a little? Well, I blame my parents for that, especially my father, because we watched, we had the news on, we had the CBC on. ABC, all of the CBC was how we learned about our new country. But my mother, you know, was quite in love with the ABC anchor Peter Jennings. And so we had him in our living room every night. And years later, when I became his intern in New York, she was just astonished. It was from very, very young age that, you know, just watching the news and thinking that looks like an interesting job. The fact remains, though, that it's not just an interesting job that you choose to take, the career path that you choose to take is is the career path that very, very few journalists actually do embark upon, which is that of a conflict reporter. Definitely being arguably, would you say, attracted to places where there is chaos and catastrophe. What is it about that that, that draws you to it? And how did you go about pursuing that path? I think what has, and it's not so much conflict that is interesting to me. It is how people cope in conflict, especially the people who are the most affected, as you know, women and children. That's always what interested me. I remember watching a story, uh, I think it was a war in Lebanon in the 80s, and it was Peter Jennings who interviewed this young boy, you know, who took him around his neighborhood and told him how he had to duck from bombs and guns and I was the same age, maybe a little older than that boy at the time. And I thought, that's crazy, right? And so that's always interested me. It's how people cope in conflict and how conflict affects their lives. And that's why I chose to do this kind of journalism. And it was very, you know, when when the war in Afghanistan and Canada got involved, CPC was looking for volunteers. And so it was a perfect opportunity for me to embed. We embedded with the military, but, you know, I always wanted to get out and talk to the Afghans and see how that conflict was impacting their lives. What is it that professionally and mentally prepares you to to leave the comparative safety of reporting to a place where you are going to be directly facing extreme danger? 
Well, we do have hostile environment training, so we all go through that. And so that does give you the tools you need, like battlefield first aid. If somehow you get shot or you're with somebody who gets blown up, you know, how to treat wounds. So that's important. And then they also talk to you about risk assessment. And there's a whole section on kidnapping. And so that all sort of prepares you for going into a conflict zone. But once you're there, you're doing your job, right? It's the same job that you're doing if you were back home in Toronto or in London, but, you know, reporting and getting stories out of people. And so, you know, you're doing the same job. The environment is just more hostile. So when you go to Afghanistan in 2008, how experienced are you in terms of dealing with conflict, but also what kind of Afghanistan are you seeing when you get there? Well, it was my second time to Afghanistan and we were doing six, seven week chunks. So, I, you know, I, I knew the lay of the land already. And back in 2006, 2007, 2008, Afghanistan was full of hope. The Taliban had been chased out. Women and girls were going back to school going back into the workforce. And those were the stories that I was interested in doing. And that's where I met a lot of my, you know, my really good Afghan friends, right? They're politicians who were still getting death threats from the Taliban for daring to go into politics. Teachers who were getting their teaching certificates back. I mean, it was just such a time of hope for women and girls. They were going to school, going to university. They could have dreams. And it was a real privilege to be able to be witness to that. I think that's why I've kept going back, is to sort of make sure that progress, which has been so fragile, holds and keeps moving forward. You're in a situation where there's a country full of hope, you're making friends. You are nonetheless in a situation where things are very dangerous, and then the kidnap occurs. You've been very clear, you've written a book about it, but this is not something that you revisit publicly very often and you don't talk about. And so I will just say to you now, what is it that you can tell me about that happened to you in 2008? What I can tell you is that in 2008, um, so to give you some context, Canadians were based in Kandahar, home of the Taliban. The battles were really fierce that summer. So in all of the South Helmand, Kandahar, Erzgan provinces, and people were becoming IDPs, right? Refugees in their own country, so internally displaced. And they were setting up camp on the outskirts of Kabul. And that's the story I wanted to tell because, you know, we're so focused on the fighting and territory gained and lost in the South. But what about all these people who had to flee because of the fighting? So the fighting in the South was really intense, you know, in those three provinces, Kandahar, Helmand, where I think the British were, and Erzgan. And so people were fleeing the fighting to set up refugee camps, informal camps, on the outskirts of Kabul. And children were in those camps and obviously out of school. And that's the story I wanted to go tell. And so that was where, you know, I flew up to Kabul for a week to do stories around, you know, the internally displaced crisis. And it was leaving that camp that you know, a car drove up and three men with guns came out and grabbed me. And um, and worse, I thought they were going to kill my translator because when they stuffed me in the car, the last thing I saw was they had a gun to his head. And so thankfully, they were too interested in getting me out of Dodge 
and they released Shakur. But I didn't know that. So they drove and drove and drove and drove. We ended up having to walk at some point, a very long way. I remember passing a village. There were farmers. You know, it's so long ago now. And then at some point, a guy on a motorcycle came, and we all got on the motorcycle. And then they drove again at night. We arrived at, like, some, looked like a a house that had been shot out, or the remains of a deserted house. And I thought, okay, well, this is not so bad, right? Like, I can figure this out. Because I'm still thinking, you know, how do I get out of this? And then they dragged me out of the house and led me over to a hole in the ground. And they said, that's your room. I said, not fucking going in there. And they threw me in. And so that was my prison for four weeks. Basically a hole that I could barely stand up in smaller than your average crawl space. You know, the the four weeks felt like an eternity, but I knew that things were happening. I knew that CBC had to have negotiators, the security company would be involved, and so once in a while somebody would ask me a proof-of-life question. And that was, you know, we hadn't prepared because that wasn't part of the preparation. And so the proof-of-life questions were things my family, I think, were telling them. What was your piano teacher's name from when you were a kid? Well, I I don't remember, right? (laughs) So there were some funny moments like that. And of course, being Canadian, one of the questions was, you know, what's your favorite hockey player, right? And so, you know, things like that, the proof-of-life. So I knew there were things happening. There were negotiations going on. And finally, you know, one night they took me out, marched me, God, what felt like miles and miles, at gunpoint. They had blindfolded me, so I wasn't sure what was happening. Did the talks fall apart and now I'm going to be assassinated? I didn't know. And then after the blindfold came off, it became clear that they were taking me somewhere. And they had warned me that they were going to sell me to, you know, a higher a different group of more violent Taliban. So I wasn't sure if that was happening or if I was being let go or I I don't know. But we finally came to sort of like a hilly area. There was a line of SUVs parked, black SUVs parked, and this guy came out, Haji, don't remember his last name now, and he said, welcome home. And he took me to the office of the National Directorate of Security, who was at the time a man named Amrul Asala, who later became one of President Ghani's vice presidents. And he was the one who had engineered this exchange. It turned out that they had figured out who the guy was who took me in charge of this operation and arrested, I don't know, 40 members of his family. The intricate detail of what happened to you during those four weeks is in your book Under an Afghan Sky. So if anybody is interested in sort of the moment-by-moment accounts that you give of what was happening to you, it it is in quite a fascinating book, not least because as well as recounting the horrors of what went on, you are compelling. You're such a compelling storyteller. Was there this overriding need to tell a story? Was there a journalist still there trying to document what was going on? I think that's why I survived, because I had my notebook 
And so I was interviewing my captors. You know, there were three guys who would take turns staying with me in the hole, if you can imagine that. And so I would interview them, ask them questions until they were, I mean, I think I drove them crazy. That was my coping mechanism, right? I wanted to tell their story too. And you do so with quite astonishing warmth, actually, and sort of humanity when you come back. Let's move on to when you come back. You have the welcome back to Canada, and then you go back to work at CBC. But you're not allowed to report abroad again, nor do you tell them about what happened to you, exactly what happens to you in the hole, because you're worried that it might discredit you as a female journalist. Explain to me a little bit more about that. I know. I I still don't know why I thought that and whether, you know, I was right to kind of deny almost that I had post-traumatic stress. I was so determined to let everybody know that I was fine. And I think that's what people wanted to hear from me, that I was okay. And I was determined to sort of show that, and especially to my bosses, you know, because I wanted to prove that I could go back into the field. The Afghan elections were the following year, and, you know, I'd wanted to go. And that never ended up happening. But I think, you know, what had happened to me couldn't have happened to an, well, I guess it could have happened to a male journalist. But being female, and especially the, you know, the sexual assault, that was hard to to tell anybody about, let alone my employers. And so if I had told them that, I thought maybe they would not allow me to do certain things, right? Um, Maybe they would. And, you know, I don't know what factored into their thinking in the end about why they wouldn't let me go back into a conflict zone. Maybe they thought I would be re-traumatized. But we never had that conversation. And they assumed things that were not true. And I maybe assumed things about their decisions that were not true. Maybe somebody, you know, somebody else would have done a better job of covering the election. I don't know, right? I guess that was my post-traumatic stress sort of manifesting itself. Moving to today, how much does what happened to you in those four weeks shape the way you see your everyday life? and also shapes the way that you make the decisions professionally and personally. Does it sit alongside you the whole time? Or are there moments when it's completely out of your mind? Um, I would say most of the time it's out of my mind now. It's been, you know, 14 years. But it informs my journalism now in a way that I never thought it could. You know, we talked about the Boko Haram story. And when I heard the news about the Chibok kidnapping, that's a trigger for me, the word kidnapping, right? So... What happens? What do you mean by that? Whenever I hear that somebody's been kidnapped, right, whether it's a journalist or, you know, 276 female students from a school in Nigeria, my mind goes back, right, to what those first moments were like as a hostage or as a captive. That sort of cold fear of adrenaline, trying to make sense of what is happening to you. I think about their parents, right? What must be going through their family's minds? They're missing. They've been taken. And sort of the the terror that goes with that. You know, I have friends who say they didn't sleep for four weeks because they weren't sure if I was sleeping. It was hard to laugh because they knew I couldn't, you know, have been been laughing. Um, so 
I think I it's a it's almost like a visceral reaction for me when I hear about a kidnapping. And so when I heard about the Chibok girls in Nigeria, I was sort of and as I read more about it, it became more horrific to me because in fact those 276 girls from Chibok were only a drop in the bucket. There were thousands of girls missing from you know and taken into the Sambisa forest by Boko Haram and those are the girls you don't hear from, right? And their private trauma, their struggle to reintegrate after escaping from Boko Haram. And that's what I wanted to explore because I think by then I made peace with my my own experience, but I wanted and to And you've been back to Afghanistan. And so. I've been back a few times. And so I wanted to explore how other women coped with the same trauma. It's a really unusual... You'd make a film out of this, don't you, called Captive? And it's an incredibly unusual film insofar as documentaries don't necessarily have the reporter's experience stitched in to the narrative. There's usually an impartiality and there is a distance. And it is something that is inbuilt into broadcast journalists, at least. You remain impartial, you keep a step back and you don't get too involved. You let the story tell itself. But your film is very different in that way. We see you so up close and personal with these girls, using this shared experience as a means of communication and, and, dare I say it, sort of helping each other. It really was. It was, you know, the fact that these girls could know that somebody like me, so different in every other way, has a shared experience with them. I'd also been a hostage, you know, and, oh, my gosh, you were held in a hole? They, they couldn't believe well, it. But they thought that you had a worse time than they did. <laughs> What's they, an unusual game of top well, trumps to find yourself in? They wanted to know about the Taliban because the Boko Haram had modeled themselves after the Taliban. So they wanted to know. They had all these questions. And I think that I wouldn't have been able to tell the story that I did if I hadn't been open with them. You know, and I say this a lot. Journalists take and take and take. And we mine other people's experiences for our stories. But what is it we give back? And I think for me, having now been on the other side of that equation, you know, having sat here and being interviewed about my trauma, I know what that feels like. And so I am more, I think it's better to share than to pretend that I am a completely impartial person who doesn't know what captivity is. And it's an interesting point you raise when it comes to journalism that you generally go and meet people and talk to people at moments of either great crisis or great catastrophe, but at an intense moment in their life. And you try to persuade them to tell them everything that they can about the most vivid and intense moments of that experience. And then you just say, goodbye, thank you, and then you leave them. That is not necessarily a very healthy thing either for the journalists, but for the people that you leave behind. What effect do you think that you had on those girls. Did you give them a stronger future? Did you give them a louder voice by helping them to tell their story or by telling their story? I hope I did. I mean, I'm still trying to get them through school, right? Like I just before You're I You're paying came, for them through school. I'm trying to, but they keep dropping out and we keep finding a new school. And, and so I've just found out from Kabir, the journalist that worked with me on this, that one of the girls has not been to school the last year, even though we paid the school fees. So trying to get to the bottom of that. 
one of the other girls who dropped out of school last year is now ready to go back. So I'm, you know, forwarding the fees for her. And so I'm still in touch with them. And I said to them, if school doesn't work, if, you know, you're too old to go back to eighth grade now, right, what is it you want to do? Is there, you know, can we get you into some skills training? Can we find a way for you to move forward? And I will keep trying until they tell me not to, because I think that I owe them at least that. That long-term lasting involvement with people who you interviews and that you've just talked about with what's happened with the Chabot girls, that has been translated now into a deep love and deep concern for what is happening for friends and former colleagues in Afghanistan. What's happening there, Melissa? Oh, um, nothing good <laughs> is happening there right now. Um, I still get emails from women inside Afghanistan who say, we need to get out. I hear stories every week about somebody else who the Taliban have disappeared, taken away, they haven't heard from. And I have these groups of people who managed to get out of the country, some of whom, you know, I helped get out of the country and now are in stranded in third countries. And I'm trying to get them all to Canada because that's a system that I know. But it is very difficult. It feels impossible. And I don't know if it's dragging up my past trauma because it's not the idea of saving people, right? But it's the idea of trying to help them escape. It's a concept, isn't it? The wounded healer. Yeah, it is. But, you know, there's always, there's also this concept, which I don't love, about the white savior, right? And that's not me. People are reaching out and they're desperate. And so I just have to do what I can. It doesn't matter doesn't matter, you know, where they are. Now, we know the Taliban are worse than they were 20 years ago. So if we can help, if I can help, I think I have to at least try. What is it that you learned about the Taliban, how they think, how they operate? You will have had the closest experience possible of what drives a disparate group of men to take a country and grasp it the way that they do and shake it. I wish I knew. I've talked to a lot of, you know, I had four weeks with my captors who essentially espouse Taliban thinking. And I still don't understand. It's this idea that women are not equal. I will never understand it. Just last year, I was back in Afghanistan right before the Taliban came. And we were doing a story on how women were being assassinated with impunity basically, over the last two years. You know, judges, lawyers, activists, 80 female students from uh, Hazara School in Kabul. And we interviewed, uh, you know, I sent a message to the Taliban spokesperson who was not in charge at the time, and I said, can we talk to you about these killings? And they sent us to a Taliban commander in Ghazni province, and it was not safe for us to travel at the time. So a local cameraman went and asked the questions. And this commander basically said that men and women are not created equal, that women are not as smart, their brains are different, they can't do certain things. And I think a large percentage of them really, really believe that. Now, there are the ones who were in Doha negotiating with the U.S., They've sent their daughters to school in foreign countries. But 
the battle right now in Kandahar among the Taliban is to go moderate and allow girls to go back to school or to stay hardline. And I, so far, it seems the hardliners are winning. So it is arguably your voice, which well, you can use your voice when you're trying to persuade the Canadian authorities to help people back in Afghanistan who are desperately sending these emails. Every time I would imagine that you raise your head publicly and start to tell people about what's going on in Afghanistan, do people still listen and is attention still being paid? I hope people still listen, but I worry that there's Afghanistan fatigue because it has been 20 years and now the Taliban are back and I think people just want to move on. The war in Ukraine took a lot of that attention. For example, in Canada, the government promised to take in 40,000 Afghan refugees. So far, about only maybe half have arrived in Canada. Meanwhile, we've seen about 80,000 Ukrainians arrive in Canada since this January. And so that tells you a lot about where people, you know, what people are thinking about Afghanistan. And that it's very frustrating for but me. How does that make you feel? It's very frustrating for me, especially when I still get all the messages asking for help. That frustration, that urgency, that drive, do you think there will ever come a time when, for whatever reason, you don't do this anymore? Maybe. Maybe I'd do something else. I don't know. You know, a, a friend of mine at Human Rights Watch said, geez, you'd be a great researcher for us. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe one day, but I think as long as there are stories to tell and people who are struggling to tell them, and really in places like Afghanistan, where we bear a bit of responsibility. We promised the women and the girls that they would have a future, and now they don't. So I feel like we owe them a little bit to try to help them out of their situation. And even, dare I ask, what it's like among friends and family who see you committed, fired up, working, 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 frustrated at what is happening. And Do people sometimes look at you and, and want to maybe withdraw you slightly out of pure care for you? I think a lot of people think I have lost it a little bit when it comes to the Afghan situation. But there are enough people who understand where this comes from. And, you know, I maybe have lost a few friends over it, but I always say they didn't know me that well anyway, because if you knew me, you know that I won't stop until at least I get, you know, this one group to Canada. What brings you hope? I think... Um, talking to the girls and the women that I do, whether they're Nigerian or Afghan, about their futures and what they still hope to do, despite all the trauma that they have been through. And that's what I think drives me, because as long as they can have hope, I think I can have hope. If you're meeting a teenage Melissa Fung in Vancouver... Um, that teenage Melissa Fung is just about to leap into a world of harem scarum journalism, taking her to the far-flung corners of the world and exposing her to goodness knows what. What's the one bit of advice that you're going to give her? Go to law school? <laughs> no, I think I would, you know, knowing her, I would just say, you know, just trust in yourself and your motivations for doing this, because I think I was always motivated to tell the stories that were hard to get to, the people who were caught in conflict, and just hold on to that, because a lot of people will tell you that it's not possible. But 
it is. Melissa Fung, thank you so much for joining me on The Big Interview on Monocle 24. And that's all we have time for this edition. My thanks to our producers, Emma Sell, and our researcher, Lillian Fawcett, and editor, Steph Chungu, and to my guest, Melissa Fung. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thank you.